The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Today we talk to Katerina Friesen, our friend and colleague in the work who put together the coalition's latest educational resource. It's called Stories of Repair, a reparative justice resource toward dismantling the doctrine of discovery. So welcome, Katerina. Thank you. So good to be here with you both. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, we three all helped make the first coalition meeting happen back in, okay, help me with the date. 2014, wasn't it? Yeah, it's 2014. So we've been together in this work for a long time. And I wanted to start out by saying, you know, I think when we first started the coalition in 2014, we would have loved to have had a resource like this. And I don't yeah. know that we thought it, we were quite ready for it. So I'm wondering, Katerina, why this resource now? What is happening now that makes you th think the church is ready for this? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't even know if I was ready for this back in 2014 as my you know, learning and understanding of the Doctrine of Discovery grew. We kind of needed to start out with some intro level resources like our film and study guide and Bible reflections. Um, and I think, you know, we really built off of the educational efforts that have been going on for a long time in the Mennonite church. Um, thanks in large part to the dedicated work of the Indigenous Vision Center and MCC Central States, um, who've been doing loss of Turtle Island trainings and Doctrine of Discovery trainings all around the country, as well as, you know, there's uh, a play now that um, Allison Brookins wrote and Ted and Company has produced. We own this now. That's been that's been um, shown all over the country. And there's also, you know, a lot of um, speaking that's going on. Sarah Augustine being a main person who's spoken all, all over the U.S. Um, and beyond since 2014 um, and before that as well. And then I also think of MC Canada and their Indigenous Settler Relations Office has been addressing settler colonialism with a lot of educational resources. So our church has gotten, I feel like, really um, profound and deep, um, introductory and, um, and deeper resources around what is the doctrine of discovery? What, a, what are the principalities and powers behind it and the structures of domination that continue today? Um, I, f I feel like we needed that work first for people to kind of, um, yeah, get us, get their foot into the door, but to know that, um, that's just the start of the journey is learning the, you know, learning the shape of the doc doctrine of discovery. And we really felt like it was time to share um, stories of what different communities are doing in response. And sometimes there's this reaction of, OK, now we've educated ourselves in our church and congregations around 
doctrine of discovery, what do we do next? There's sort of this um, sense of, of ambiguity or searching um, around what are the possibilities. And I think there are just so many. So we wanted to share more descriptive rather than prescriptive stories of what different congregations and communities are doing um, from land return to um, real rent, kind of land taxes, um, to putting restitution in the budget, to standing in solidarity um, with struggles like pipelines going through indigenous lands um, and settler communities coming alongside them in advocacy around land protection, just the whole range of of different ways that I see and we've heard um, Mennonites, especially white settlers, um, taking some form of responsibility around addressing the harms of, of ongoing colonization. Um, so we also wanted to lift up, you know, there's a, there are, um, there's been a racial reckoning. I think in 2020, we started the resource before that, but we really wanted to lift up these stories as a, a way for Mennonites to join, I think this broader movement around repair, um, when George Floyd was murdered by the police, there was um, heightened attention at the time and continues today that I hope doesn't um, that that doesn't um, fade. But there's this heightened attention to the root original sins in our country that have never been fully addressed. You know, slavery and of um, black uh, indigenous people from Africa stolen from their lands, um, stolen labor and bodies, as well as stolen lands, indigenous land dispossession uh, and genocide of indigenous peoples. And, and both of these root sins are tied together by white supremacy and have both been justified by Christianity. So it really felt like the timing was ripe to, um, to take the conversation further and to deepen our church's um, understanding and practice and witness um, to um, to more life-giving um, ways of ways of being on um, on this land um, and ways of of practicing um, repentance and um, the kind of repentance that that isn't just in word only not just apologies but that's really working around, making amends and and coming alongside indigenous communities towards sovereignty and towards um, a future that's defined by respect for for land and um, for the kinship relationships uh, within what's been called the community of creation. So thank you, Katarina. And I just want to reiterate the name of the resource is Stories of Repair, a reparative justice resource towards dismantling the doctrine of discovery. And Katarina, where can people find this resource? Um, it's available for download for donation on our website at www.dfdmeno.org. And um, you just have to scroll to one of the drop down menus for um, educational resources and you'll see it there alongside other educational resources. Um, and we, we actually just placed the print orders. So those who placed it, place their orders to get a print copy. will be getting those soon in the mail. Wow. That's fabulous. And so I, I'm just going to kind of go off on a tangent here for a minute, Katerina, and ask you, why is this topic 
um, repair. Mm. Why is it important to you personally? Mm. What motivates you to, to care about this? I mean, I know you've spent just, just a ton of time, um, working on, um, developing this resource, recruiting people to, to, um, to participate in it and providing analysis and guidance. I don't know how many hours, but I, you know, I, I can't imagine many, many, many hours. And so I guess there must be a personal motivation. What, what is motivating you? Mm. Oh, thanks for that question, Sarah. Um, feels so deep in my bones. It's hard to even articulate with words, but for me, I, um, you know, I think a lot of it starts with my own story and learning, um, growing up, learning the stories of my ancestors and really hearing a lot of kind of martyr and persecution stories of how they were driven out as, as German speaking European immigrants, Mennonite, um, settlers in Russia and how they were driven from their homelands time and time again, and then settled in the Ukraine um, in the 1700s, and then um, were were again driven out in the early 1900s by war and conflict and violence there, um, came over to the, the U.S., to California, and also to Kansas and Oklahoma. Um, and it was only after learning about the Doctrine of Discovery, you know, back in 2013, 2014, did I really started asking, how did they come by those lands and learned that, you know, they had received, at least in Kansas, cheap lands offered by the government to settle alongside along the railroads. Um, they benefited from from land that was that was taken by from indigenous peoples after their food sources were decimated. Um, and they didn't either I don't, I don't think that they knew how to ask the questions that are available to me today because of their kind of trauma and need for security. But today I get to do the work that my ancestors maybe couldn't do. And I feel this real sense of responsibility and, um, and actually love for them because I feel like they're with me, accompanying me on the journey. Um, and that their Anabaptist values of, of peacemaking, of living in right relationship, of care for the land, are ones that that I can still embody and practice in this work, and really apply to um, to really redress of these deep harms done that that continue to um, impact Indigenous peoples today. So, so that's part of it for me. And you know, the root word of the repair. As I was doing work on this resource, I looked into the etymology and the Latin roots, and it means um, some of the Latin roots are uh, repatriare, which which means to return home or to return to one's native country or land. And so I love that there's kind of this rich, almost double meaning or, or triple meaning there of, you know, returning home, returning land home. Ultimately, part of the part of one of the goals of this is that indigenous peoples can are, who are involved in land restoration efforts that we can be part of returning literally some of these lands and homes um, to indigenous sovereignty and homelands. Um, and then I think there's also a kind of returning home for white settlers like me in this process of um, losing some sense of control and um, even, you know, the security of private property and wealth. Um, how can how can reparation allow us to kind of return to a, a deeper sense of um, security in, in God's in God's truth and God's creation and abundance that, that isn't about 
um, asserting control over and returning home to the roots of our own stories and through truth telling. So I really thank you for that. It it really accurately describes why I also do this work. And I I feel like they're smiling down on me. You know, I feel like they're cheerleading me as I do this. Yeah, you know, I really relate to it too um, and think often about doing this work on behalf of my ancestors. Um, and it just sort of causes me to think about, you know, we have this very difficult and painful past that we share together and, and we're alive now. And how do we step forward together, um, on behalf of, of our ancestors, you know, all three of us mm-hmm. and, and work towards uh, a better world for our descendants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really, that's really at the core of it for me. Maybe why I feel it in my bones is that they wanted a better world for their descendants. And this is part of my, um, part of my working out of that vision and understanding the the ecological crisis that we're in and the connections between that and, um, colonization and land dispossession and genocide. Um, so really, you know, um, doing this work on their behalf and asking what they couldn't ask, um, Thank you for sharing that, Katerina. I really appreciate that. And I, I just want to sort of highlight again that this work um, it is it comes from a deep personal um, level and um, how how thankful I am for for your part in that work, Katerina. And, you know, as you were putting together the Stories of Repair resource, you spoke with multiple indigenous activists and theologians. Tell us about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you learn from that, doing that and consulting them on this? Yeah, it was really important for us to have indigenous advisors in this work, obviously. And so we reached out to um, we reached out to um, three different indigenous activists, theologians, advisors um, who've said that they are OK with us using their names. So I'll just name them here. Kelly Sherman Conroy, Jim Bear Jacobs and Randy Woodley. And I'll have to say um, Sarah, your thinking and speaking and writing also, I, I feel like joined this advisory group in a way that really influenced this resource. Um, and there were also several indigenous artists um, who we were in conversation with along the way about their artwork and its meaning and um, the themes of reparative justice as well. Um, so we learned a lot from these indigenous advisors. You know, um, at first, I think we were made aware of their concerns about being tokenized because there's a long history of being used as indigenous peoples by the church as sort of a kind of check mark of approval, you know, Um, that, that there, it looks good to have indigenous um, sort of names on a resource. And we, we didn't want that to be the case. So from the beginning, we gave them veto power over the resource. So they could literally say, we don't think this is helpful and we don't think you should release it. If at the end of our hours and hours of work, that was the case, we wanted to respect that decision. And we also asked, you know, if they wanted their names listed on the resource. Um, we felt that that kind of release of control from the very beginning, if it was truly reparative, we needed um, we needed them to have the authority and the power in this decision making about even whether or not to release it and what was in in the resource. So, um, so I'll just share maybe some of the 
the a couple, you know, learnings through our conversations with them. I think, um, you know, a few a few things or learnings, many learnings came out of this, but just a few points. You, you know, they really affirmed um, our process in creating the resource that we that we wrestle with the questions around, you know, what is reparative justice that we um, have, you, you know. deep discussions amidst our team. And I'll say it wasn't just me creating the resource, though I was the lead editor, but there was a whole team um, through our um, cultural change committee that that met at least monthly, if not more so, as we were working with these different sections um, of the resource. And they had, um, you know, a lot of input and responsibility. So just want to name this was a group effort and not just me, but the Indigenous Advisors... um, told us that the educational process along the way, even as we interacted with contributors was important. So rather than, for example, simply cutting out a story because it didn't make the cut or didn't reflect, you know, the sort of heart of reparative justice that we were seeking, they asked us to um, to reach out to those contributors for a conversation. Um, so sometimes ask them for more context or to give them feedback on why perhaps we were either uncomfortable or um, felt that the the contribution either needed more more work or more um, or or perhaps didn't quite fit the resource. So that the educational process along the way with people was actually part of the work. Um, I think also that um, you know the actions of repair that we share about in the resource, like the 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 restitution or the um, the, you know, land restoration work, um, that these actions of repair open the way for relationship building. I think I came into this perhaps with the assumption that um, relationship building was kind of an end in itself. Um, But I came out of this really feeling like indigenous peoples don't owe us relationships. Um, And I think the advisors helped us understand that even more, um, that, that, as Christians or white settlers, you know, out of this history of harm that's been done, um, unless there's real kind of steps taken to show that um, that that repair, um, that that um, contrition, that amends, that some tangible form, though it will never replace what's being lost of action and um, and repair are made, you know, relationships are really cheapened or they fall short. Um, These actions, I think, can open the way for relationships, but they're not a guarantee. And relationships are not sort of, like I said, owed by Indigenous people Mm -hmm. or settlers. So that was a major learning for me. I really appreciate you saying that, Katerina. And I'm just thinking about um, restorative justice Mm -hmm. as well. And I know reparative justice is a little different, but restorative justice or restoring relationship is really first acknowledging that there's harm Mm -hmm. and then engaging in repairing that harm. And without a commitment to engage in that repair, the the next step, which is, um, which is forming a healed relationship is not really possible. And so this is one of the things I think, you know, as, as denominations have approached me and said, Hey, will you be part of this ceremony? And we're going to apologize and you can be there to accept the apology. And I say, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that can be hard to hear sometimes, but, but an apology is inappropriate until we've actually, um, 
we've engaged in repair and repair from the perspective of the injured party. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what helps to restore us to right relationships. So <clears throat> that's not exactly what you said, but I appreciate it because I think there is this understanding that if I'm sorry that you owe me, you know, I'm going to stretch my hand out and you owe me to stretch your hand back. Yeah. And there's also this feeling that there's that, that we are owed gratitude mm-hmm. that, you know, folks in the church or the dominant culture are owed gratitude that it should be a really, you know, good and sort of sparkly experience for them. <laughs> And and it isn't all the time. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's not very satisfying because, because there are deep wounds and uh, repair is a process and, you know, uh, that's, that's part of it, I guess. I appreciate you saying that Katerina. I take that. I think that takes a lot of humility to, to be able to, to go there. So I have a follow-up question from that, which is that I think sometimes when I've seen, I'm not saying our resources, but I've seen other resources that talk about, you know, how to, how to dismantle the doctrine of discovery or how to do practice, how to have reparative justice and relationship with indigenous people. And sometimes they will say things like, you know, find out what native people live where you are and, and reach and, and basically try and basically try to form relationship with them. I mean, I feel like it's almost said that explicitly sometimes. And I confess, I sometimes have a lot of discomfort around that, you know, actions item, you know, uh, for the reason you just said. Um, So I was wondering if maybe Sarah and Katerina, you could speak a little bit to that. Mm, yeah, I. Oh, it feels so complex and complicated sometimes because um, really responding to the the um, felt needs and to the each context is so different. For different Indigenous nations, are working on different issues. Like here in California, many of them are working around federal recognition. Um, in other places, they're restoring their land base and other places they're fighting extractive industry, you know, like there's struggles on so many different fronts and so many nations are focused on, you know, these are supposed to be treated and respected by the U S as sovereign, um, sovereign nations where they are, they're, they're their own government. And so they're focused on nation building and cultural revitalization and, you know, bringing back their languages after so many years of oppression and, um, and literal, like, policies that made it illegal to practice ceremony and speak languages. So of course, like, I feel like there are, there are indigenous groups who have very little time and energy for white people wanting to come in and be educated or white settlers wanting to come in and take more of their time and energy that they're trying to just continue and and survive and flourish as a, as a group today. Um, And so it's really, I think, delicate work. And I'm, I'm trying to like, encourage us to think more communally around that, around this. So for example, in the Elkhart Goshen area, a lot of people are trying to reach out to Potawatomi um, nations now because those are the, you know, they're, they're on their traditional homelands. There are a lot of Mennonites concentrated in that area. Well, how could we have, for example, one point person who is, you know, working through our coalition, like, like we've, uh, Luke Gosho has agreed to be an ambassador um, in Elkhart Goshen area from our coalition to who has formed some bridges, who has 
you know, met with um, representatives from from Potawatomi groups in the area and, and may know more about what struggles or what issues they're working around and be able to liaison with folks. So it's not 50 people going, but there's one point of connection and thinking more collectively around this, because I, I do feel like there's at least a need to know what the struggles are and are we responding in an appropriate way um, repair. So that's, that's one maybe point that I would want that question. I don't know. What what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I would respond a little bit, a little bit differently, although I don't disagree with what you're saying, Katerina. And for me, it's about, um, what, what the purpose of relationship is. And so, you know, one of the things that I learned early on in my career working with vulnerable communities, so yes, indigenous communities, but other kinds of vulnerable communities too, is that, you know, there is an assumption that that you're going to reach out your hand and they're going to sort of step into where you are at. (laughs) And that's just not true or possible, you know? And so I think one of the things that, that has been really helpful um, for me is thinking through what what needs doing in this and how can I be part of doing that so I would often start in in my in my early career just showing up and being early and put and setting up the chairs so I'm gonna set up the chairs and then and then I'm gonna sweep up after I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to stack the chairs and sweep up after. And, and then over time it's like, Oh, she's coming early. Could you give rides? Yeah, I'm going to give rides. Anybody need a ride? I'll give a ride. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give rides. Okay. I'm bringing snacks. I'm bringing snacks. I'm setting up the chairs. So I'm there. I'm present. I'm not saying anything. I'm just listening. Um, as this community is embarking on identifying, um, their own interests and what their needs are. And then, and then I'm showing myself to be available, to support in a way that's appropriate uh, based on the amount that they trust me. So if I'm, if I'm, if I'm pretty good at setting up the chairs and then you know, I'm trusted to give rides and then I'm trusted to, you know, reliably bring food and over months and months, you know, I'm just sitting there not saying anything and just, you know, then eventually I could be asked, what do you think about this? And, and so then I, I'm available. And to me, that's, that's the process of engaging in relationship um, where, where there is an imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to walk into a room and pump someone's hand and be like, how you doing? How you doing? I'm here to like help you solve your problem. You know, it's just not, not helpful. Yeah, that's, I, I appreciate you naming that power difference, Sarah, because that's, and the fact that there's just been this legacy of, you know, historic harm um, that is a white settler woman that, you know, my people have harmed indigenous people that, um, and that, that is, that comes into the room when I walk into the room with them. Um, and I think, you know, just to say one more, I know we have many more things to ask you, so I'll make this quick, but we, you know, the the way it happened in our congregation is we have a, a native woman in our congregation who reached out to two Ohlone men. She's, uh, she's Nez Perce. So her, um, people are up in, the Idaho area, but she reached out to two Ohlone men who are native to this area. And they came and spoke at a indigenous people's day service that we had, and they did do education and they did talk about their people and they were really happy to do it. And they have this cafe Ohlone that they started up. It's called a decolonization cafe where they're bringing back the traditional foods of their people. 
and they serve it to people and they do it by way of educating the local people here around the fact that they're Ohlone people and they're still here and they are still have these beautiful life ways to share with people. So they wanted to do education. And a woman in our church started volunteering with them. And I know she does a lot of the grunt work, like you just were talking about, Sarah. But she's so happy to do it because it's just um, beautiful to be a part of this project with them in that way, just doing the grunt work. Um, But relation there has been a relationship form there over the months. So I just want to say there's lots of different ways to entering it into this. But I think we just have to do it so as a white settler woman, I just have to do it carefully. The other thing I would say, Sherry, and I just agree with everything you said, is also that um, engaging in relationship on the local level does not um, mean that we can step back from, from, um, from, the structural work that is identifying laws and policies that are destructive and that are, um, that, you know, provide advantage to one group over another, those laws and policies that are designed to remove indigenous people from their lands and working on that because, um, from my point of view, people in the dominant culture, um, benefit from those policies and, and don't need the permission of vulnerable peoples to do that work. Yes. I was just going to say to add on to that, Sarah, I'm so glad you brought that up because so often people want relationships locally where they are. Sometimes that may not be possible. Like that may not be wanted from the local indigenous group or asked for, um, or maybe because of the history of forced removals and, you know, um, genocide that it may be re- really hard to find those local folks, depending on where you are here in this part of Turtle Island. Um, but our coalition has relationships and that's why we're a coalition is that we can represent the Mennonite church in relationships with indigenous peoples as they invite us and ask us to partner in addressing the doctrine of discovery and its manifestations today, you know, and, and we can in, invite people through our most recently formed repair network um, where congregations and communities can join um, and receive calls to action from indigenous partners like the um, save Oak flat campaign um, or protect Oak flat campaign and the Maya community um, who we're working with. And I imagine you've shared about on this podcast and really, you know, trace the, the lines of extraction and how they're also padding our own church investments um, and do redress and repair work, um, addressing addressing the impacts on vulnerable peoples who are displaced today by those extractive industries. So just wanted to really, um, yeah, second what you just said about it's not just local. We're going to actually do a whole podcast on this um, in the future because we think it's such an important topic. Um, so I'm just wondering, Katerina, and you've already spoken to this, I believe, but maybe uh, we can. there might be other things that are sparked by this question of what challenged your own thinking as you were doing this research? And what is your takeaway about restorative justice now? I think one of my takeaways from this resource and the process of creating this and also my own personal work, because as I was doing this, it called me to not just do this in word, but also in action and um, to find ways to um, to make restitution for the private property that I own today, which is such a 
um, yeah, a strange thing to me now um, to own this land, but to be able to um, reach out and to support Wakchumni youth at a at a um, indigenous led youth camp in my area, which was a priority shared from um, a local Wakchumni Yokuts group, um, to be able to you know continue to educate and um, revitalize indigenous culture in in my own area. Um, so that's one step that I've taken along with the resource um, to be challenged into personal action. I think was one of those ways that I felt like this was integrating in my own life and um, to continue to seek ways to learn and to elevate um, opportunities in the in what's now the Fresno area in California for people to um, engage in repair work locally. Um, but I would say one of my uh, one of my takeaways has been the role of um, grace. I feel like I have a lot deeper understanding of of um, Jesus's grace uh, mediated through indigenous peoples who are inviting us into this work um, and saying that, yes, harm, um, harm has been done and there is no way to make this right. You know, the least we can do today is um, is to seek to, you know, make things as right as possible as restorative justice principles say, but there's, there's no way to make amends for the, for the loss of life and land, um, and the trauma that's been endured. And yet they still keep calling us as Christians, as white settlers, um, to, to this work of repair, um, and to sometimes not always, like I said, it's not owed, but into relationship and into solidarity, um, for healing, not just for, um, our own sake, but for the sake of, of life on this planet. So I feel like that to me is just absolute grace in the sense that we don't deserve it. We, um, we, it's not, you know, asked for, it's something that's unmerited and it's just, it's just given to invite, to join into this. So I see this in the stories and the resource of, for example, one woman who was involved in returning inherited land, um, to this Let's tribe in in present day Oregon, um, and the the community um, had been visiting their land year after year, where they had an ancestral burial ground. Well, obviously this is their rightful land. Their ancestors are buried there. They did ceremonies there, and they then, after the land return, invited that family into their ceremonies. Ultimate, you know, absolute grace that that isn't something that should be expected. <laughs> Um, or is earned by that land return, like you said, Sarah. So that's just one example is just the place of grace in this work was a takeaway for me. Mm. That's really beautiful to hear. I I think another takeaway is just that there are so many entry points into this work. So I love the example of um, a pastor from Canada, Moses Falco, who um, joined his community and a uh, a number of different um, church leaders and faith leaders who went on a delegation to Shoal Lake 40, where the indigenous community didn't have access to clean water and were cut off from their um, from their land base um, by you know Canadian water infrastructure that was taking their water um, for um, for the dominant society. And he, you know, this is. I, I think just an opportunity and a, and a really a story of how anyone can can engage. They don't have to own land necessarily um, or inherited wealth, but they can still join alongside indigenous peoples. And so he went back and animated his own community and joined in advocacy efforts 
um, for clean water for that lake, which I think only just recently came through um, for that Shoal Lake 40 community. So, um, so there's many different entry points. And I think our Stories of Repair resource um, offers a lot of, you know, different points of engagement. Um, I would just say another, um, another takeaway is the, the call to Jubilee has not gone away. Um, one of my favorite pieces in the resource is called The Dish Feeds Us All, Jubilee and Indigenous Laws of Sharing. It's a conversation between Adrian Jacobs, who's a Cayuga um, elder in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and Steve Heinrichs, who's a second generation settler and director of the Indigenous Settler Relations for Mennonite Church Canada. And um, they talk about the politics and spirituality of Jubilee, this, this ancient call from the Jewish scriptures um, and community towards, um, towards land, you know, redistribution of um, economic leveling of, you know, an end to building up wealth generation after generation. And they talk about what that means in Canada and the um, dish with one spoon territory um, and really go into the treaty history and the importance of honoring covenants. Um, so I just feel like this resource is just a beginning, you know, Jubilee and the call, Jesus's call, um, who echoes that, you know, in his call to ministry in Luke um, is about um, liberation and um, redistribution and, you know, this, this radical reorientation towards land, not just as resource and commodity, but as gift for, for the sake of life and for, um, for us to relearn how to care for and to submit ourselves to the wisdom of indigenous peoples who've been doing that, um, generation after generation for thousands of years, um, on this place we call Turtle Island. So I hope that readers hear the call to Jubilee and this resource. And, um, you know, our indigenous advisor said we should probably re- release this resource in a couple years and gather stories again, um, that this is just the beginning. You know, I, I don't feel like this is, this is an end point. It's, uh, really an opening to, to the long-term the lifelong and, and maybe centuries long work of repair. Thank you so much, Katerina. And again, this resource is Stories of Repair, a reparative justice resource towards dismantling the doctrine of discovery. We sure appreciate you joining us today, Katerina. And thank you for all of the work, all of the hours that you've put into developing this resource together with your um, team on the coalition and the cultural change uh, committee. Just want to thank you for, for being here and sharing this uh, with our listeners. And I want to thank you because I just so often hear people asking, what can I do or what can we do? And I also hear people when they become aware of the magnitude of the harm that's been done, they can get kind of paralyzed with guilt and shame. And I think that this resource offers a way of, it, it is only through action that we can move and we, meaning white settlers, can move beyond guilt and shame to something that is actually healing and liberatory, not only for the people who have been harmed, but for us, the harmer, you know, who have been part of the harm. And this is just such a concrete thing to, to give to people to say, here's 
here's some ideas of where to begin. So thank you so much. I feel like for, as a pastor, this is a pastoral resource that I can't wait to give to people. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you, Sherry. And Sarah, and I just want to say, you know, Sarah contributed a piece to to this collection. And as one of my takeaways, um, I feel like there's an opening in Sarah's piece around the need to challenge private property that we have yet to explore as a coalition. And so just want to lift that up and saying that, again, this is an opening and hopefully a, a conversation starter for all of us in our congregations and communities. All right. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a whole other episode yes, right there. <laughs> this podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. Thank you.